Seven last words of our dying Savior. And just like the man that we're going to study, the man that John just sang about, have you ever felt trapped in a situation and with no hope of being saved? Can you identify with that a little bit? Look at that elephant. I mean, how would you like the job of getting that elephant out of I don't know what? I mean, how did that happen? And then uh, I like the bird, you know, the bird, you know. If I could just get that bread, that's bread around his head. And then the cow, you know, I just see him saying to you, 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 you want to go for a ride? I, I just, you know. But my favorite one, my favorite one is that horse. I mean, you ever felt that way? He's got his head like in a tree? I don't know. Just, it, it's just bizarre. Ever feel trapped in a situation with no hope of being saved? Well, I'd like for you to take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 23. Turn to Luke chapter 23. And let's read verses 32 through 43, because we're going to see that it's not just animals that get trapped in hopeless situations. It's people like you and I. It's people like the men who were crucified on either side of Jesus. So look at Luke chapter 23, and we're going to read verses 32 through 43. And if you don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible. It's page 608 in your pew Bible. Luke chapter 23, verses 32 through 43. There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left, then Jesus said, and here's the first cry, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots, And the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in the letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. And he's really saying that in a sarcastic way. Since you are the Christ, since you claim to be that, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Father, we come. And we are humbled and awestruck at the foot of your cross. We see people doing things, saying things, and and sometimes we are way too distant. And we're just observers like some that day. Other times, Lord, we are participants and we're, we're actively and we're in our unbelief. We're even rebelling against you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would open hearts this morning open hearts and minds, and that we would see, Lord, that in this cry of salvation, there is hope for the hopeless and the helpless. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Well, I wanted us to read the first cry and the second cry together for two reasons this morning. First of all, the placement of the crosses is crucial for understanding this morning's message. Uh, it says in verse 33, one is on the right hand and the other is on the left. I like how John 19, 18 puts it. They crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now, I think that's awesome because in God's sovereign purposes, he is accomplishing his purposes in spite of the unbelief and rebellion of men. They're crucifying and yet God arranges so that Christ is center stage. Isn't that awesome? The glory of this sinless, 
suffering, sovereign Savior is right where he ought to be in the center of all things. I think, too, even though it doesn't explicitly say this in the Bible, I believe they're not only, Jesus is not only in the center, but I believe they are positioned in a semicircle. That the crosses are in a semicircle so that they can each see one another, so that they can read the inscriptions and the charges for which they have been condemned that are nailed to the top of the crosses. We see in this that they can see each other. We see that they can read these charges. They hear one another speak, and they even speak to one another through their gasping last breaths. You say, what's the significance of that? Well, I think the significance is this, that the placement of the crosses reveals the connection between the first cry, the cry of forgiveness, and the second cry that we're studying this morning, the cry of salvation. Because here's here's the point. Jesus' second cry from the cross is an answer to his first cry for forgiveness of the undeserving. Last week, Pastor Bruce explained to us the first cry. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And yet what he says to the rebel next to him is an answer to that very prayer. I think that's awesome. We learned last week that God, the Father, answered Jesus' prayer for forgiveness in a big way after the resurrection, when over 3,000 people were saved through the preaching of Peter in Acts 2. But I want you to see this morning that God answered that prayer in a small way immediately when one of the two criminals on the cross asked Jesus to remember him. And immediately Jesus says to him, Assuredly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And so we see that it's not because it's an answer to the first one, The second cry from the cross is a cry that saves. It's a cry that saves a helpless and hopeless rebel. Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now stop right there. Stop right there and think for a moment. All of us here this morning, in fact, everyone in the entire world is one of those two men on either side of the cross. Here this morning, you are either the one who is taunting and ridiculing Christ with a heart of unbelief, or you are the one who started out mocking, who started out taunting, but then had a change of heart, a change of heart in which he repented of his sins, requested salvation, and received it from the sinless, suffering sovereign Savior who was crucified in the center. You see, you might be saying to yourself, now wait a minute, wait a minute, Chris. Uh, You're calling me a rebel? You don't even know me. I'm not a rebel. I mean, I, I, I may do some bad things every once in a while, but I don't deserve capital punishment, and I certainly don't think I deserve to be crucified on a cross. And so this morning I want to show you two things. I want to show you this morning that we are all rebels at heart with no hope of being saved from God's eternal judgment. And then I want to show you how Christ on the cross saves rebels without hope, just like he did this one rebel who was dying without hope right next to him over 2,000 years ago. So let's begin with this question. Are you a rebel at heart without any hope? Are you a rebel at heart, without any hope? Let's consider four words. These these men on the cross are described with four words, and I think it will give us a bigger understanding of not only them, but perhaps even of us. Number one, these men were evildoers. These men were evildoers. Now, if you worked for Walt Disney, you'd call them villains. Okay, When we were on our Walt Disney cruise, they had a show called Villains Tonight. They're the bad guys. Okay, These guys were evil, evil doers. They were villains. Now, Luke describes the two men on the cross by this word three different times in this passage. You can see it in verse 32, verse 33, verse 39. And in all of our English Bibles, it translates this word that, you, uh, that Luke picked by the, by the English word criminal. Criminal. 
But the word means much more than just being a, a, a criminal that kind of just broke a law or two. It means literally evildoer, a worker of evil. Makes being called a criminal sound kind of better, doesn't it? Okay. See, these men were guilty of doing evil things. They committed serious crimes against the state and against society at large. They were the villains, the bad guys who did bad things. In other words, when you saw them, you ought to do what you do when you see a bad guy in a, in a, in a melodrama. What do you do? You go, boo, hiss. These are bad guys who did bad things. While Jesus lived a perfect life of doing good, these men were doing evil. While Jesus did what was right, they were doing what was wrong. And that's why, number two, these men are called lawless. Outlaws. People who considered themselves above the law or outside of the law. They were lawless. They were outlaws. We see this in Luke 22, verse 37. It says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And if you remember from last week's message and even this week, this is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53.12, where Isaiah, thousands of years earlier, predicted these words. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Remember, one on each side and him in the center. Yet he bore the sin of many and he makes intercession for transgressors. The first cry of the cross. Interceded, first cry. Numbered among them, second cry. Now, what is a transgressor? A transgressor is someone who breaks the law, especially God's law. The word means without law or lawless. You see, these men not only broke the laws of Rome, but more importantly, they had broken the laws of God's kingdom. Roman Empire, okay, they can take your life in an excruciatingly painful way. But when you break the laws of God's kingdom, Jesus said, do not fear those who can take your life. Fear him who will punish you forever in hell. You see, number three, these men were rebels. They were rebels. Now, this is an interesting word, this word rebel. That's the word I want you to stick in your mind. We traditionally think of these men as two thieves, as translated in the King James Version, or as the majority of modern Bibles, they call them robbers, robbers and thieves. And this is, this is one meaning of the word that Luke chooses here. It, it, it means robbers or thieves who are like bandits or pirates who lie in wait along the, the road for unsuspecting travelers. You know, back then you didn't have the safety and security of a locked car. You were walking on foot, and they would hide in lonely places as you went from village to village. And they would jump upon you, and they would beat you, and they would take everything from you, and then leave you for dead. Sound familiar? The parable of the Good Samaritan, who fell among thieves, it says. And the same word is used there. Robbers, highwaymen, pirates. Land pirates, I guess you would say. But this word also had another meaning meaning in Jesus' day, and I think it's used here in Luke 23 and elsewhere. It means not only a robber or a thief, but a rebel or a terrorist who are more than just robbers. They're rebels. They're revolutionaries, so-called resistance fighters who wanted to overthrow Rome and perhaps even claimed to be the promised Messiah that Jesus was looking for. See, it's one thing to break into a home and take what is not yours. That's a thief, that's a robber, or one who attacks another person. I think there's a distinction between those and the law. I don't, I don't know. There's a, a robber and a thief is not the same thing. Where's Donna when I need her? Okay, there's a difference. You know, one you take and the other you attack. But here's the point. These were more than that. They wanted to overthrow Rome. They wanted a revolution. They wanted to take who was on the throne down, and they wanted to put who they wanted on the throne, particularly, probably who? Themselves. And they would do any means to do it. See, they were robbers, all right, but they were robbers of authority. They were greedy, all right, but they were greedy for power. And they would not let anyone stand in their way. Now, this idea of being rebel, a rebel or a revolutionary, is what Jesus meant when he said to those who came to arrest him in the garden the night he was arrested. The night he was betrayed and they came to arrest him, this is what he says in Luke twenty-two fifty-two. 52. 
And I'll quote it from the New Living Translation. Am I some dangerous revolutionary, he asked, that you come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there every day. You see, if you plug in the meaning of robber, it just doesn't fit. Why are you coming for me as a robber at night? He's saying, look, you're treating me like I am going to overthrow Rome. You're treating me like I am a revolutionary and a rebel. You're treating me in this secretive way when, in fact, I was in the temple teaching the word of God every day. I, I wasn't a rebel. I was humble. I was obedient. I was there every day. Besides, and here's the clincher, Rome didn't crucify people for being thieves, but they did crucify people for trying to overthrow the government. You see, number four, these men were probably terrorists. They were probably terrorists. More than likely, these two men were no different than Barabbas. You know Barabbas, the one who was supposed to be on the cross that Jesus was on, the one who Pilate offered to the people, who will you want? Do you want me to release Barabbas, who is a murderer and a rebel and a revolutionary, or do you want Jesus, who claims to be the king of the Jews? Look at Mark 15, 7. And among the rebels in prison which would include the two who had not yet been crucified. Among the rebels in prison, and that word rebels means simply rebels, who had committed murder in the insurrection. They had committed, he had committed murder in the rebellion. There was a man called Barabbas. See, more than likely, these two men were part of the rebellion led probably by their leader, Barabbas. More than likely, they were part of the same rebellion. Barabbas was their leader. If this is true, then Jesus is dying on the very cross of the lead rebel and the murderous terrorist. This, make his char- this makes his charge all the more ironic. This is the king of the Jews. In other words, what Rome was saying is, this is the head rebel. This is the head revolutionary among the Jews. And look at what Rome does to rebels. All rebels beware. The same will happen to you. So I would suggest to you, in light of what the Bible teaches, that these two men were rebels with a cause. Unlike James Dean, they had a cause. They're rebels with a cause. They wanted to overthrow Rome and set themselves up, or perhaps their leader Barabbas up, as Israel's savior. They wanted to do what only God can do. They wanted to do what only God has authority to do. They wanted to do what only God has sent his son to do, and they wanted to do it in a way that was totally opposite of what he had sent his son to do. Now, it's easy to think, and you might be thinking this right now, well, I'm glad I'm not as bad as those guys. And I would like to say to you, I'm glad you're not either. Because this would be quite a congregation filled with rebels and revolutionaries. But you know what? If you are a political rebel seeking to overthrow our government, you are welcome. You are welcome to hear this message. Because it's a message for the worst rebel at heart. But the reality is many of us Perhaps none of us are planning to overthrow the government. Though the way the economy is going, we may, you know, look towards that. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. But I would put forth to you that we are all rebels at heart, seeking to overthrow God's authority in our lives. You see, other people are not the standard by which we determine whether I have rebellion in my heart. I don't compare myself to others and say, well, I'm not as rebellious as them. I'm not as evil as them. I'm not as wicked as they are. You see, the standard is God's law. 
Have I broke it? The standard is God's glory. Have I, have I fallen short of it? The standard is God's holiness. Am I as good as God? In fact, the standard is the man who is hanging in the center. The standard is Jesus. God's standard of righteousness. Thus, Jesus, this Jesus, this Jesus, who Pilate had already said is innocent of wrongdoing, whose Pilate's wife said, this is a good man, don't do him wrong, who Herod said, I find nothing wrong with him, and who very soon one of the rebels will say, he has done no wrong. This Jesus, who God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased and who has never sinned. He is our standard. And what does that mean for you and I this morning? It means this. We may not have a rap sheet on earth, but we all have a rap sheet in heaven. We all have a rap sheet in heaven. And it reads very much like these men. Because you see, the only difference between us and them is we haven't got caught yet. But one day we will stand before God and God will judge us by His law, by His word, by His Son, and all of us will have a rap sheet for which we will be condemned. You see, compared to Christ's holiness, we all fall short and we deserve eternal death, forever separated from God, and suffering eternal torment in an everlasting fire called the lake of fire. You see, we are evildoers. We have done wrong in the eyes of God. We are lawbreakers. We often live as if we're outside of God's word, as if we are outside of God's expectations, or we're above. We can get away with doing what he doesn't want, and there won't be consequences. That's being lawless. That's being an outlaw. We may not be rebels physically here this morning, but we are all rebels at heart who have a natural inclination to overthrow God's rule over our lives. Can you shake your head and say, yeah, that's me? You see, we play musical chairs with the throne of our hearts. And we walk around the throne of our hearts, the throne that rightly belongs to Him. And when the music stops, we try to push Him off and put our bottoms where He belongs. And so we're rebels. You say, well, at least I'm not a terrorist. In our heart of hearts, we're all rebels, revolutionaries, and we're terrorists too. We may never have murdered to get what we want, but we have gotten angry at people who got in the way of what we wanted. Can I hear a yes? We've gotten angry at people who got in the way. This is what I want. This is my agenda. This is what I desire. This is what I'm working for. And you got in the way and we get angry. We get angry in our hearts, and if we're gonna, let's get real honest this morning. Deep in the recesses of our rebellious hearts, we've wished people dead. If, if, if not only God take them out so that it will be more appropriate, God eliminate them. You see... We have called people who stood in the way of us getting what we wanted horrible names in our hearts and perhaps even wish that God would take them out of our misery by taking them out of this earth. You see, we come to Romans 3, 9 through 20, and what should we say then, Paul says? Are we better than they? Are we better than these two on the cross? Not at all. As is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after of God. They've all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There's none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb, and with their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Do you see in verses 39 and 40? 39, they're full of bitterness, cursing. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The one rebel asks the other, do you not fear God? Why? Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I would put forth to you that we are all rebels at heart with no hope because the wages of sin is death. It is appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. 
we will not escape. We are those men on that cross with Christ's righteousness condemning us for what we have done. This is what God says to rebels like us. You will get what you deserve, physical, spiritual, and eternal death. So you see, we're no better than the two who are condemned to be crucified on either side. Like them, we are helpless to save ourselves. We cannot do anything to turn back the wrath of God. We are hopeless, certain death. There's one statistic that is 100%. You will die. And after this, the judgment. And like them... We taunt God. Oh, we may not taunt Jesus. We may, ver- with our lips, we may give him respect, but a heart of unbelief is taunting Jesus. You say you're Lord, you say you're Savior. Well, if we believe it, then why don't we trust him? If we, our unbelief is a taunt and a mocking of who Jesus really is. And so, in verse 39, we are like these two criminals. You saved others, why don't you save yourself? You claim to be such a savior, why don't you save yourself and us? Have you ever said that to God? You've been in a tough situation and said, God, get me out of this. I thought you loved me. That's what they're saying. They're saying to Jesus, if you're so good, and if you're who you say you are, then get yourself down out of this, and by the way, get me out of this too. And oh, we're all that way, aren't we? God, give us physical blessing. God, eliminate the physical suffering. God, cancel the consequences of my sin. But by the way, leave the rest of my life alone. See, that's what the... They're not asking for salvation in verse 39. They're saying, I want down off of here. And you said you could do it, and you're not doing it, and you're going through the same thing I'm going through. And by the way, remember that when you're suffering. That the God of this universe has gone through what you are going through, and he's gone through it more. I want you to serve me and meet my needs, but I'm not concerned about serving you. So it's not a very pretty picture, is it? Not a very pretty picture. Sin and rebellion against God never is. So I ask you a question. Is there any hope for rebels like us? Spiritual criminals, spiritual outlaws, spiritual rebels, spiritual terrorists, there is hope for us. Because look at verses 39 and 40. In verse 39, the other Gospels tell us that both rebels were mocking Christ. Both were mocking Christ. But something occurs between verse 39 and verse 30 and 40 where one of the two has a change of heart. And suddenly he goes from unbelief To believe. He goes from mocking to asking. He goes from saying, get me physical deliverance, to saying, I don't care about the physical deliverance. I'm looking for eternal life. And so how did that happen? How did verse 39 become verse 40, and then in verse 42, how did Jesus have this cry? How does that happen for rebel? Is there hope? And how does Christ save hopeless rebels like us? The first way he does it is repent. The first way he does, he does it. How does God, Christ, save hopeless rebels? Repent of sin like the rebels on the cross. How does Christ save hopeless rebels? By granting them the gift of repentance. Jesus has preached repentance from the very beginning of his ministry. In Mark 1.15, here's the very first message Jesus ever preached. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. In the beginning of Luke, this is how Jesus summarized his mission and message. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. On another occasion in Luke, he says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Still another time, he says, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then at the end of Luke, the Great Commission, here is how he sums up his life, his ministry, and the mission that he sends all of his followers on. Luke 24, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, 
And it's not just Jesus, it's Peter and it's Paul preached the same message and they preached it to Jews. See, sometimes people say, well, repentance was the message for Jews. It's not the message of the New Covenant. It's not the message of the New Testament. And yet here it's preached to Jews and to Gentiles in the book of Acts, which Luke wrote both books, so he knew what he was doing. In Acts 5.41, it says this, God exalted Christ at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. But then in Acts 11, Paul preaches to the Gentiles, and when they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. I'm sorry, that's not Paul. That's uh, the result of Peter's preaching to Cornelius. The point is, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, God wants to give you and grant you a changed life and a changed mind. In Acts 26.20, the last of Acts, here's where Paul is preaching. In Acts 26.20, at the end of the book of Acts, just as the end of Luke ended with that message, so Paul is preaching at the end of Acts, and here's what he says. He declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, that would be Jewish area, and also to Gentiles, and here's what he preached, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. What's the, how does Christ help save? How does he save hopeless rebels? Repent of your sin like the rebel on the cross did. Acts 26.20 gives us a great definition of repentance. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of life. You see, we repent when we change our mind about our sin and we go, you know what, that's sin and I need to stop it and I see my sin like God sees it. That's repentance. I change my mind. I change my mind and I repent when I start seeing Jesus the way God sees him. You see, this rebel on the cross went from justifying his sin to saying, I am justly condemned. He went from mocking Christ to saying, you are who you say you are. You are who God has revealed you to be. You see, he had a change of mind about his sin in his life. Now, when there's a real change of mind about sin and Christ's ability to save us and give us new life, there's always going to be a change of life. Acts 11.18 says, repentance that leads to life. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of life. In Acts 26.20, it says we should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. A change of mind leads to a change of life. So how did the rebel on the cross ever repent? Well, look at verses 40 through 42. And I believe up on the screen, you've got seven ways he changed his mind. I mean, there they are. I, I, I think this is amazing. Here's a man who's on the cross. He's nailed. His life has been evil, wicked, and, and rebellious, and now his life is ebbing away. He is literally nailed. He can't do any good. And some people say, they'll look at that and say, well, what about the, the rebel on the cross? How did he repent? Well, there you go. Seven ways that in these short verses of 40 through 42, that he had a radical change of mind. You see, we think of him not knowing hardly anything of the gospel, and yet there on that cross, he learned much by God revealing it to his heart. Look at what it is. He had a change of mind about the future wrath of God. Suddenly, he went from mocking Christ to fearing God, and he says to his partner, do you not fear God? We're going to be held accountable. Secondly, he had a change of mind about his own rebellion, rightly deserving to be punished. Suddenly, he went from, from justifying his rebellion to saying this to his partner, seeing, do you not fear God, seeing that you are not under the same condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we receive our due reward for our deeds. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, look, I not only deserve it, but I'm getting everything I deserve. And he's saying to his partner, quit your sarcastic mocking and start repenting of your sins like I am. We're in desperate situation. We're hopeless. We're helpless. Number three, they had a change of mind about Christ's own righteousness, which did not deserve to be punished in this way. Notice what he says in verse 41. But this man has done nothing wrong. He saw Christ, he saw himself as sinful, and he saw Jesus as sinless. That was a change. 
And then number four, he had a change of mind about Christ's authority to rule as king in his coming kingdom. He said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember, over Jesus' head, they had put, this is the king of the Jews, and the soldiers were mocking, you say you're king, and suddenly this man's had a change of heart, and he's saying, you know what? This sinless, suffering, broken individual next to me is the king. He's the king, and his kingdom is coming. And I've had a change of mind. I want in. I don't want to rebel anymore. I don't want to overthrow God's law in my life. I want in. And so he had a change of mind, number five, about Christ's ability to redeem him from his sins. And he simply says this, remember me. Remember me. He quit mocking Christ as Savior and started to trust Him as His Savior. He stopped asking for physical deliverance and He started seeking spiritual deliverance in, no matter whether His physical circumstances would change. And he, had not, and he had heard the first cry of, the, of Jesus, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And He's saying, hey, that's not just for the people around the cross, that's a, for me. I'm on the cross and it's for me. I'm in my last hour. It's for me. I can be forgiven too. And sixthly, he had a change of mind about God's revelation of who Jesus was as Lord and Savior. Because he turns, and in some of your Bibles you're going to have Lord, but the, 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 the better reading of the manuscripts is Jesus. He turns and he says those beautiful words that even a, a child can say, Jesus, remember me. Luke began his gospel with these memorable words. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. In his kingdom there will be no end. That's who he was talking Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And seventhly, a change of mind about Christ's resurrection from the dead. This, only God can reveal this to you through his word. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember who he's talking to, a broken, beaten man. And he's saying, you are the son of God, and you are going to die, and I'm going to die, but you're going to rise again. And when you rise, raise me with. And all I'm asking is that just perhaps you would let me in and experience eternal life on the outer reaches of your kingdom. You see, this rebel clearly believes at least four truths about Jesus in these short verses. He believes Jesus will die. He believes he will be buried. His body will be disposed of in some way. He believes that he will rise again, and he believes he will return to earth sometime in the future, to bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Beloved, I say to you, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. And he believed it on that cross, that you will die, buried, rise, and reign, and you can save me. You say, now wait a minute, I thought change of mind leads to a change of life. Let me show you how his life changed. Yes, even on that cross, a change of mind, true repentance brings a change of life. Let me show it to you. Number one, what he stopped doing. His life changed. He stopped mocking Christ, and he started asking Christ to save him. Secondly, what's, what he started doing, instead of participating in sin, he began to expose sin. See, before he was joining in the mocking, now he turns to his friend and he rebukes him, the Bible says. And number three, he turned to who he turned to for salvation, Christ alone. He literally, and I believe he could see Christ on the cross, he literally looked at him, and he turned to him, and he said, Save me. I'm a hopeless rebel. And then, fourthly, we see a change of life on why he asked Christ for salvation, to enjoy being under the lordship of Christ. Please don't miss that. He didn't want to be saved into an easy, comfortable life. He said, 
Remember me when you come into your kingdom. I want to live under your lordship. I just don't want to have forgiveness. I want to enjoy being under your rule in my life. That's what true repentance is. I want to get out of the bondage of sin, and I want to get under the lordship of Christ. Did you notice that both criminals asked to be saved? One asks in verse 49, and Jesus does not save him. Jesus does not witness to him. Jesus does not speak to him. And this reason is he asked to be saved, but not with a heart of repentance. He didn't want spiritual deliverance. He wanted physical. But in verse 40, this broken, humbled, repentant individual says, I don't care about dying physically. I want to be forgiven and have eternal life. Please save me. And he's the one that Christ listens. So I asked you this morning, where are you? Where are you this morning? Do you need to repent? Are you trapped in your sin patterns? Does your situation seem hopeless? Do you know that you're helpless to change your heart and start a new life? Do you realize that it's not God's fault that we are the way we are, but we were born sinners and we choose to be sinners? Well, see, like the rebel on the cross, God can mercifully grant you repentance today. Let's all smile and say a hearty amen. He can give you a change of heart that will lead to a change of life. All you have to do today is ask him. And so the second way Jesus saves rebels like us is request salvation. Just request it like the rebel did on the cross. I want to make three quick observations about his request for salvation. First of all, he knew he didn't deserve and couldn't earn salvation. He knew he didn't deserve. I mean, if there's ever a picture of a man that couldn't work his way to heaven... It's a man on a cross. His hands are tied. He can offer nothing to God. His feet are nailed. He cannot go and do wonderful things on the mission field. And his body is stripped naked. He has nothing. He doesn't deserve it. He can't earn it. So he does what the only thing you can do. The only thing a rebel can do, and that is... Beg for mercy and ask, would you just give it to me? Would you just give it to me? He repented and requested. Do you note that this man was never baptized? He never joined a church? He could do no religious ritual? And yet Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. He couldn't do anything to earn his way. Secondly, the second observation, he knew, how to ask, he knew who to ask for salvation. He knew who to ask. He asked Jesus and no one else. Jesus, whose name means Savior. Jesus, who will save his people from their sins. Do you realize he could have asked Mary? Mary was right there at the foot of the cross. He could have asked Mary to help him talk to Jesus, but he didn't talk to Mary. He could have asked the Jewish priest and had a priest help him get to heaven, but he didn't talk to the priest. He could have asked the Roman soldiers for permission from the government, but he didn't do that. He went directly to the one mediator between God and man, the God-man, Jesus. He knew who to ask. And thirdly, he knew no one could ask for him. He knew that no one could ask for him. He asked for himself, and he could not ask for his friend. That's all any of us can do. No one can make the request for you. You must repent of your own sins, and you must request your own salvation. You cannot depend on your spouse, your parents, or your children to get you into heaven. Now, what help happens when rebels like us repent of our sin and request salvation? This is the cool thing. You get more than you ask for, and that's a good thing. You get more than you ask for, and that's a good thing. Number three... How does Christ save hopeless rebels like us? Receive salvation from the Savior like the rebel on the cross. Receive it like he did. Salvation is a gift from God. Now listen, look at verse 43 again in your Bibles. Look at verse 43. Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's just hit four things here. When rebels like us repent and request, here's what we're going to receive. Number one, we're going to receive his saving purpose. Then Jesus said to him, I love this. Jesus is dying. Do you understand? I mean, every word, every breath is, is, is excruciating. Do you know excruciating comes from cross? 
But to speak would be even more effort. And yet this rebel says, would you remember me? And boom, boom, boom. Jesus immediately responds. Today. He's so quick to respond. Why? Because this was his purpose. This this is why he was born. This is why he lived. This is why he died. And this is why he reigns. He is eager. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If you will call to him today, boom, 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 he will respond immediately. He will not say, oh, let's think about this. Oh, let's talk about this. He'll say, this is my purpose. I'm the Savior, and Savior save. And, oh, man, I'm glad you did. Secondly, you will receive his saving promise. Truly, I say to you, salvation is not a guess-so. Salvation with Jesus is not a hope-so. Salvation is a no-so because he said so. That was good, Chris. That was good. That's all right. I took it from Warren's Wiersbe. It's not a guess-so. It's not a hope-so. It's a no-so because he said so. Truly, I say to you, your salvation is certain and secure when Jesus gives it to you. You say, well, how do I know? Because he said so. Yeah, but I don't hear him like he heard him. You hear him in his word. Listen, many people think that you can never really know you are saved until you die. Many people think this. But that's cutting it a little too close for me, don't you think? Because when you die, it's too late. It's appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. The man received the saving promise of the Savior, and he was 100% sure, as John sang, it's my time's coming, paradise is coming. Because I have his saving promise. And third, you will receive his saving power. And that power is he can save today. Today. Remember I said he got more than what he asked for. You know what he asked for? He asked for sometime in the future after we die, sometime in the future, could you possibly let me just get in your kingdom? And Jesus turned to him and said, my friend, you can have it today. And you're not on the outside. You can be with me in paradise. Listen, you can be saved today and know it for sure and receive, fourthly, his saving presence. His saving presence. You will be with me in paradise. Listen, this is salvation, being with Jesus. Salvation is being in his presence and enjoying it. You know what, paradise? a lot of ink has been spilled about what is paradise, where is paradise. I think Jesus told us what paradise is. It's heaven. It's where Jesus is. And if Jesus is in heaven, then paradise is in heaven. But if Jesus comes back to the earth and sets up his kingdom, then paradise is on earth. And paradise, by the way, was once in the Garden of Eden. The word paradise means the garden of a king where he would invite his most intimate personal friends to have fellowship and friendship with him. And what did those two, our forefathers, Adam and Eve, they rebelled and they lost it. And Christ has regained it. Listen, he's saying, friend, you don't have to be on the outskirts of my kingdom. You can come into the Oval Office. In fact, we'll go to Camp David and have a good time together. His saving presence. It's like a backstage pass. Well, I say to you, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation for hopeless rebels like us. And so there's two applications for this morning's message. And man... I haven't done my job, and the Spirit hasn't done His work if you, don't, if you can't see it. And it's this. Are you 100% sure of where you will spend eternity today? Do you know the joy of having your sins forgiven and your heart changed right now, today? And you might say, Chris, I, I, I think I'm going to put it off. I think I'm going to be like this guy did. I'm going to wait until the last minute. I think I'm going to shoot for a deathbed conversion. Let me tell you two problems with that. A lot of people have used this man's testimony as justification for delaying salvation until the last minute. First of all, could I tell you that no one knows when your last minute is? No one knows. It might be today. And you're thinking 30 years from now. 
And then, could I say this? No one, we do not know that this was this man's last opportunity. This very well could have been his first opportunity to hear Christ. See, here's the facts. We don't know how many times he had encountered Christ. Just like you and I don't know how many times we will get to make the decision for Christ. I like what uh, one uh, Puritan uh, pastor said. We have one account of a deathbed repentance in order that no man need despair. And we have only one in order that no man may presume. If you've got a loved one that is near death, it is in unbelief. You continue to pray. You understand that as long as there's breath, there's hope. And today they can be saved. But if you're here today, it's you that God is concerned about. Do not delay. You can know for sure. And then, secondly, do others see in your life? For those of us who you, you, you have repented, you have requested, you have received, could I ask you today to ask yourself, do others see in your life the evidence of a changed life? Is your greatest joy spending time in the presence of your Savior and Lord? Here's what God is saying to us who are saved. Perform deeds in keeping with your repentance. Turn from any sin that would distract from the Lordship of Christ in your life. Let's pray. With our heads bowed, and as the praise team comes, boy, this is a message we need to respond to. We need to respond to today. And so as they come and as they play, I just want to challenge you. You can receive Christ right now. You you don't have to walk an aisle. You don't have to pray a prayer. Although God wants you to make this decision public at some point, all you have to do is what this, this, this man on the cross said. You just need to repent, request, and then receive the free gift. Receive Jesus as your son. Lord, I know I'm a sinner, and I'm helpless and hopeless as this man was. And though I may not be outwardly, I may outwardly look like a good person. Inwardly, I'm a rebel at heart. And so forgive me, and I trust Jesus. I turn to him to save me. And I look forward to the reward in the resurrection to come. And then if you're sure of your salvation this morning, and I, we ought to be, because we can be, What area is Christ not Lord of in your life? Where have you pushed him off the throne of your heart? Would you repent and perform deeds in keeping with the Lordship of Christ? Father, we pray, do what only you can do. Bring a change of heart that would lead to a change of life as they play.